Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet that we find ourselves on. And happy Friday. We're almost to the holidays. And uh, again, in the holiday spirit, we'll do a podcast ahead of Christmas, looking at all the political risks that have gone right, the good news in the world. It's too often discussed. Even in my profession, one of the problems is the phrasing, political risk, assumes there's danger. A more accurate, if somewhat more cumbersome way to put it, is that there's political risk and reward out there. And we work awfully hard at the firm at being positive and looking at the positive and the opportunities for businesses, for governments, and for ordinary people to enjoy the benefits of what's going on. And although we have to focus on the dangers to the world, and this this year has been full of them, no doubt about it, from the Gaza War to uh, Hamas-Israeli War to divisions in the United States to the decline of Europe, etc., there is still an awful lot of good news out there. And uh, I'm going to riff. I don't even think I'm going to take notes. I'm just going to discuss the good news because there's opportunities and there's happiness out there. And just start with the basic idea historically, and as you know, we always have a historical lens here, that in the 20th century, the supposedly terrible 20th century, what do we see? That there are a couple choices to be the ordering power if things had gone differently. You could have the Kaiser Wilhelm II's militaristic Germany running the show. You could have Imperial Japan running the show. You could have Hitler, Stalin, or Mao running the show, the unholy trinity of mass murderers and lunatics. Or you could have the bumbling old United States committed to the, the Enlightenment ideals of Jeffersonian liberty running the show. And for all our many failings, for all the tragedies, for all our mistakes, anyone who wouldn't say that this ended is a happy story hasn't seen that the United States dominance of the world has led to an increase in democratic government, freedom for individuals, and an increase in capitalism, freedom for people economically to make their own choices. And it's by far the happy outcome that anyone would wish. And one of the things I really like about The Last Best Hope is it's positive, is that for all the problems we've been in, I always think this to myself, historically, we've been in worse shape. And strong, realist leaders have come through at the key moments. And just one final note on that, January 10th is coming up. And after we finish with the holidays and the new year, it's time for the community to gather on January 10th and everybody go onto the Amazon site. The Amazon American site would be ideal. And please give us the five stars and either say, can't wait to read the book or write a review of the book once you have. But the 10th is the key date. As many of you as possible to get that Jeff Bezos algorithm working for us. And I will be incessantly mentioning this. I apologize because we're now beginning the exciting PR work up to the book. And I'll discuss this more as we come along in January because Kathleen Schmidt, our PR guru, has done a magnificent job assembling an awful lot of exposure for the book. That's a thing I'm grateful for this Christmas is Kathleen's incredibly hard work along with, of course, John Goodnight, my, my, my deputy, the McCartney to my Lennon. And uh, I think if you see the work they've done in January, it's head-spinningly great. And the book is going to get out to a wide audience. But to really maximize our chance to change the Republican Party, America, and the world, please, on January 10th, do something proactive and positive. Go onto the Amazon.com site of the United States and give us the five stars and say either love the book or can't wait to read the book, depending on the truth. 
and off we'll go getting that algorithm working for us. But it is all systems go, and we're very, very excited about that. But before we talk about all this positive stuff, um, I have to mention something that is undoubtedly a downer. And one of the hardest things, it's almost the reverse of wish casting, that you don't want to always be the bearer of bad news and political risk because people don't like it for obvious reasons. But again, we have the moral imperative of Burke that to make the world better, we must see it as it is warts and all, and then try to improve it from there. And the simple political risk fact, the bleak truth, as the headline of this substack goes, is that Iran has already achieved its strategic goals in the Gaza war. And this is one of the reasons that all the chicken littles out there, uh, Neil Ferguson saying, my goodness, there's World War III has started, all the neocons echoing him, David Frum and Max Boots, and Ann Applebaum and all the people who were wrong about Iraq, all the people who were wrong about Afghanistan that somehow still think they ought to be listened to. Um, it's extraordinary, really. John Bolton, throw him in the mix. Bill Crystal, Robert Kagan. Uh, they certainly have no shame or self-reflection. One has to say that. There's a reason they were booted out of the Republican Party. Eventually, failure is noticed. And this idea that the Hamas war was going to expand became a truth, a truism early on. And as you know, I was a lot more skeptical about that. And I said, look, the, the tripwire will be what happens with Hezbollah. And so let's take a step back and look at this. And this is a great strength of realism from Iran's point of view. Let's assume we're sitting in Tehran. What do we see? And I think if you do this, the outcomes in the Gaza war, the bleak one, which is that Iran's already achieved its goals, is met by the positive one that this war is unlikely, though it's not impossible, for it to spin out of control for us to sleep, to world sleepwalk, to World War III, a la Christopher Caldwell's, um, sorry, Christopher, Christopher Clark's great book, The Sleepwalkers, on how World War I started without anyone really wanting it to happen in the first place. And so let's go through why that hasn't happened, why it isn't likely to happen, how it could happen, and how our firm gives that only a 10% chance. But to do that, we have to use our magical realist powers of logic and the ability to see things from another person's point of view. So today we're going to be sitting in the decision-making circles around Grand Ayatollah Ali Khamenei in Iran. What do you see if you're in the Iranian leadership right now? Well, you have all kinds of domestic problems. You can't run an economy to save your life. It's riddled with corruption. The, Repu the Revolutionary Guard uh, become stakeholders in, in this corruption. Uh, but for the average Iranian, things are very poor. There are these social Im implosions uh, that happen when you mistreat women, when you mistreat minorities, or just because of the economic incompetence of your leadership. So there are huge internal problems. But if you're looking externally, and you're an Iranian leader, this is a pretty good position to be in. Um, again, you have to look at this through the notion of religion if you're going to understand the Middle East, and this requires historical knowledge. Um, fortunately for me, I wrote a book about Lawrence of Arabia where I learned the intricacies of this for years. It took me years to write that book, but it's one of my favorites, uh, the biography of Lawrence. And one of the things that you see is that if you look at things through the Sunni-Shia prism, a lot makes sense. So let's do that. This is the roughest of comparisons. I have to make this point before I simplify. This is the roughest of comparisons. Obviously, there are historical differences. Now, having said all these caveats, let's use the analogy. 
that the Shia tend to be similar to the Catholics, making a Christian analogy that our Western leaders will understand and our community will understand, and the Sunni tend to be the Protestants. And by that, I mean specifically the Shia are a smaller group than all the, all the Protestants added together, as Catholics are smaller than Protestants. The Shia are a smaller group than the Sunni. But like Catholics, they're much more organized. It's much more top-down. It's much more centralized. It, it acts more coherently. So although they're, they're a plurality, they're the largest single group, they're more centralized, more able to act more quickly, more top-down. And that's Shiism. Sunnism is similar to Protestantism. There is a hodgepodge of different groups. All of them are broadly um, within the same rubric, and it comes down to who you think should have succeeded the Prophet Muhammad as leader. And that was the key difference uh, that led to religious fighting and the schisms in Islam early on after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. But that's a rough rule of thumb, and we'll see that time and time again, this is how the divisions in the region actually work. To start with, the, the champion at the moment of Shiism is Iran. The champion of the Sunni movement are the Saudis. The Saudis are the champion because they bankroll the rest of the region. They're the swing producer in OPEC and the dominant player in OPEC plus with the Russians. And they're the keeper of the holy places. And, and I did in my Lawrence biography, I, I learned how important this was. They're the keeper of Mecca and Medina. They're the custodian for the most holy sites of Islam, and this confers great prestige upon them. And it's a very important fact. So these dueling visions of Islam, the Shia and the Sunni, have as their champions the Saudis and the Iranians. And this division spills over into geopolitical and national rivalries and civilizational rivalries, I'd argue, as well. And if you're the Iranians sitting around in Tehran this morning, again, you've got all these internal problems socially because you mistreat women over and over again and subjugate them and beat them to death when they don't wear their hijab correctly, there are these sporadic outbreaks of rage and yet you're repressing groups in society. You, you're comically inept at running the economy. It's riddled with corruption, of which the Revolutionary Guard, the shock troops in your arsenal are part of it. It would be like if the CIA and the FBI had a huge stake in running the American economy, uh, which would be a catastrophe having been to some of their meetings. Um, and so you have these internal problems, but externally things look pretty darn good. You have what you would call the Shia Crescent, that Shiism that you have sponsored is dominant in a series of key countries in the region. If you start with the civil war in Yemen, your friends, the Houthis, who are Shia, are dominant. There, they've won the civil war. And despite the Saudis directly intervening, uh, this has been a catastrophe. The Saudis would probably like to get out of if they could. But the Iranian faction, the Houthis, who are Shia-based, are dominant there. You're dominant, of course, in Iran. You're dominant as well after the American insanity in Iraq. You've displaced the Sunni ruling class, which had been ruling Iraq for centuries, and put in, into the plurality-dominated Shia Major change, and surprise, surprise, the Shia find themselves utterly dependent and to some extent codependent, and happily so, on Iran. So after a trillion dollars and hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives and thousands of American lives, you've left Iraq a client state of Iran, which was obvious. Well done, Robert Kagan. Why anyone listens to you at all or would buy lemonade at your lemonade stand is beyond me. I wrote this 20 years ago, and here we are. And so you have 
in order for the Shia, the Shia crescent, Yemen, Iran, Iraq. And then as you head further afield, you go to places like Lebanon, dominated by the client, the direct client of Iran, Hezbollah, the Rolls Royce of terrorist groups in the world, the best run one, that's, that's in part indigenous, is organic and indigenous to Lebanese society. Um, Hezbollah is an interesting group in that they also do things like build roads, build hospitals, give out social welfare in the areas they control, that they're embedded rather deeply in Lebanese society. And although they don't form a majority in, in any Lebanese government, they, are the they do have a plurality, meaning Hezbollah can veto anybody else running Lebanon. And so this is how they keep control by negation. And uh, th they are easily the jewel in the crown of, of Iran's various assets in the region. So Lebanon is dominated by Hezbollah, which is, again, Shia-based and very close to Iran. And then even the Syrian civil war has been a pickup, that the embattled, bloodthirsty, blood-stained Assad regime are Alawi, which is an offshoot in Islam, but they have tended to side with the Shia over time. And so you have a Shia crescent of dominance from Yemen to Iran to Iraq to Lebanon and on into Syria. This is a pretty good innings. And when you look at the Sunni powers, you have Egypt in, in, in incredible decay, whether Sisi wins or not, he's an economic illiterate dependent on the next World Bank loan. Egypt is punching way below its weight since the ousting of Mubarak, and I would argue you'd really have to go back to Sadat, and is punching below its weight despite its demography and despite its traditional place as the, as the champion of the Sunnis. This has given way to the bankroll of the Saudis being the new champion of the Sunnis. But you have chaos and, and, and decline um, in the Sunni areas, particularly in Egypt, you have decline. Um, and then you see the chaos in the center of the Arab world. So if you're an Iranian and you're looking out at things, things look pretty good. This is a pretty good outcome. However, and what started under Donald Trump, for which he gets no credit, and he should, there has been an effort to limit your regional aggrandizement. And it's been through the Abram Accords and then around them. And what Trump said was, we can't let the Palestinian, the lack of a settlement over Palestine, the lack of a deal for a two-state solution, which largely is the fault of Yasser Arafat refusing to say yes when Bill Clinton offered him 85% of what he wanted, rather than being a great statesman like Michael Collins in the Irish Rebellion, where he was killed ultimately for his efforts, but did establish the Republic of Ireland, Arafat chose to be popular and corrupt rather than a statesman and possibly killed, and the, the Palestinians have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And so it's largely their fault, their leadership's fault, that they didn't take the deal on offer, but here we are. For 30 or 40 years, the Holy Grail has been reaching a deal over Arab-Israeli, and it never happens. And everyone hides behind this, saying, well, we're not going to move on and look further at the problems of the region. We're going to let this problem stop everything else. And Trump said, we have to end this logjam. Let's go around the problem and worry about the Saudi-Iranian relationship, that this strategic competition is the key to the region with the Palestinian issue as an intractable sideshow. And so suddenly Trump gets on board through, through deals, through the Abram Accords, Sudan, Morocco, Jordan, and then, of course, Egypt has had relations with Israel for a long time, and critically, Bahrain and the UAE, two Gulf states who would never have agreed to formalize diplomatic ties with Israel, 
um, if the Saudis hadn't winked it through. Everyone knows that the Saudis are the big brother of the Gulf Cooperation Council and that nothing would be done there with the UAE and the Bahrainis if the Saudis hadn't said, go ahead and do it. So that was very hopeful that we could ultimately have an even bigger accord. But suddenly Israel is represented, and this suits people economically. The Israelis have an awful lot of money to invest, and this region, particularly in the Gulf states, they have an awful lot of need for investment. So this is a logical business fit. And by moving beyond this, the other thing they have in common is geopolitics. They're all frightened and against Iran gaining further power. And in the Middle East, as Lawrence figured out, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they have an awful lot in common economically at the macro level, as well as geopolitically. And so Trump rather brilliantly, again, gets no credit, sews this together. Biden, despite making noises, doesn't undo this. That's always a good sign. If you don't undo what your rival's doing, it means it was probably pretty good. Biden goes along and says, well, why don't we put this final capstone piece of the puzzle, which is the Saudis. Let's get them to actively declare uh, formal diplomatic recognition with Israel. The Saudis have Vision 2030 under their leader, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the de facto ruler of the country. And he has these huge investment projects to try to wean Saudi Arabia off being a one-crop economy and to diversify, seeing the end of petrochemicals at some point and having a more diversified economy. Hugely ambitious plans by 2030, desperately in need of investment, which the Israelis have. And these are the two leading anti-Iranian powers in the region, the enemy of my enemy being my friend. So it's a logical fit. If you can talk your way around, the two people who are against this, King Salman, is, no doubt MBS is his favorite son, and he's made him his heir, uh, directly uh, breaking tradition of Saudi government that the next oldest brother becomes king, that finally with Salman, he said, no, we're changing that. It's now an absolute monarchy run along lines similar to primogenitor that my son will inherit from me. This breaks with tradition. It's a big deal. We jumped down a generation, finally from the sons of Ibn Saud, the founder of Saudi Arabia, down to the grandsons of whom MBS is the first de facto ruler. But but King Salman has an emotional, romantic attachment to the Palestinian cause. But he's been relatively sidelined because of he's, he's in his late 80s and is ill and is willing to hand things over. And on the other hand, the Arab street and the Saudi street, which is always fanatically pro-Palestinian, and this has to be kept in mind. You can't go too far. But with the Abram Accords, Trump has opened the door here, and Biden kept leaking that the administration was just weeks away from reaching a deal really between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, formalizing diplomatic ties of the Israelis and the Saudis. Now, if you're sitting in Tehran looking at this, this is your worst nightmare. The three greatest enemies you have in the world are uniting, combining together diplomatically against you, economically, certainly, but also geostrategically and formally. Informally, of course, there are all kinds of contexts, but this would be formal and makes it a lot easier. This is a catastrophe that you want to avoid at all costs. Hence, the Gaza War. And the ties to this are different, again, than, than Ferguson and his neocon buddies would have you on. Don't think of an early Connery uh, bond, satisfying as they are, and they're a fantastic vintage. I, those of you who've never seen an early Connery bond do that. Uh, Dr. No from Russia with Love, which is my personal favorite. Um, Goldfinger is fantastic. Um, I, you know, I like You'll Only Live Twice in Japan. See one of those. And it's very satisfying. Spectre are a united, coherent enemy. 
Number four, how's extortion going? Number three, how's blackmail going? And so all the forces arrayed against American allies get together in a meeting, wear a business suit, sit in a chair, and talk to Blofeld and say, here's how things are going, as though they're coordinated and coherent. It just doesn't work like that. But how it does work is that the two key groups, the the extra state, the non-state terror groups of Hezbollah and Hamas, have very different ties to Iran. If you're Iran, you want to stop this. How do you stop this? You make the Arab-Israeli issue central again. Who agrees with you about making this central again? Um, the Palestinians. And what are the two Palestinian, the main Palestinian group you can work with that's militant? Hamas. This is absolute logic 101. So you work with Hamas, you get them on board, and you don't care about Hamas. They're Sunni and you're Shia. You're not co-religionists. You don't much, you know, they're Cinderella compared to the stepsisters. You don't really care what happens to Hamas, but you have a common enemy in Israel, and you certainly want the Palestinian issue to move to the forefront again, because if the Arab street rises up, what happens? The Saudis can't sign a deal with Israel, and you stop this coalition that, that you hate and is directed at your heart, this dagger at your heart. You move it away, because If the Arab street is inflamed, MBS can't do what he wants to do. And I'm sure MBS privately, and there are indications this is true, thinks that that the Palestinian issue is merely a nuisance, that it doesn't really matter. And instead, what he wants to do is make common cause with the Israelis against the real enemy, which is Iran. If you're the Iranians, you want to change the subject and say, no, it's still about the Palestinians, inflame the Saudi street, and then MBS can't do what he wants to do strategically. And that has happened. And that's why Iran has accomplished its strategic goals. And it hasn't been in lockstep like an early Connery bond. It hasn't been, number three, you will now go and invade um, Israel. No, it's more like a grant organization. And I've worked with these my whole life. I know how this works. You, you say, look, I have a proposal to mess with the Israelis. It's going to take, and this planning for this took years. We need some seed money to make this thing happen, but it will humiliate the Israelis and make the Palestinian issue central once again. Can you throw us some money? That's an arm's length kind of kind of relationship. And the Iranians have said, sure, okay. And then they they saw what happened. Did they know the exact date and time this happened? Probably not. It doesn't mean there isn't a tie, but it does mean the tie is far more indirect than the neocons make out. Where the tie is direct is what's saving us from Ferguson's fantasy World War I. They're all united and sit in a clubhouse. There's North Korea. I can see the spinning image puppets. There's North Korea, Iran, Hezbollah, Putin. And, and you know, Ann Applebaum went so far as to say Hamas acted um, as a birthday present to Putin. And she didn't mean this uh, allegorically. She meant this literally. This is not the level of lockstep they're in. This is a fantasy. This is a fairy tale spun by very dangerous children who are the cause of the Iraq war and should never be listened to again. If you get the number one strategic issue of your era wrong, that should pretty much preclude you, as Vietnam did, from playing any part in discussions afterwards without explaining it, at which they have no shame. But certainly Hamas didn't act for Putin's birthday. This isn't in lockstep. And really, it's it's not the Hamas part, which is easily explicable, but the Hezbollah part. If Hezbollah were to get involved in a big way and Israel had to fight a two-front war, you could argue there would be a danger of this thing spinning out of control. But that hasn't happened. Why? The only question that matters in political risk, why? 
Well, because Iran doesn't want it to. Think of it again from an Iranian point of view. Why in the world would you want this to spin out of control? The shock attacks of Hamas have forced Israel to pull itself together and start a genuine shooting war with Hamas. You've already accomplished every single thing you've wanted. The Arab street is utterly inflamed against Israel, the United States at all. MBS has quietly stopped negotiating with the Israelis, as he absolutely had to. And if this war goes on and the Israelis say it will take more months, frankly, counting counterinsurgency, uh, there's no doubt the war will go on for at least a year, that, that there won't be uh, this level of fighting. The Israelis will take Khan Yunus in the south and then withdraw and then based on intelligence make further attacks, but that they're going to be occupying Gaza for the next year as the Arab street continues to boil. And what the Iranians have hoped, I think reasonably, is the street gets so inflamed that even after things settle down, MBS can't go back and negotiate a pact with Israel and the United States. That would be a win-win-win for Tehran if we're sitting there this morning. So you've already gotten everything you wanted for just giving a little seed money to Hamas so you don't really care about. What you do care about, however, is Hezbollah. And that's why this thing isn't going to get out of control. Why would you want to endanger Hezbollah? Because unlike Hamas, Hezbollah are Shia. They are co-religionists. You do have coherent ties to them. You do talk to them every single day. They are Shia like you are. Sheikh Nasrallah, the man who runs Hezbollah, goes to Tehran constantly. They have constant negotiations in a similar way that we do with our allies via NATO. There are constant meetings, constant discussions. They are Shia co-religionists, whereas the Hamas people are Sunni. They don't really care, the Iranians, what happened to them. They're useful allies for each other, but the allies are based on interests, where there is an emotional and religious tie to Hezbollah and Iran. And Hezbollah, unlike Hamas, we always lump these things together, are not the same. Hamas are very much Cinderella compared to the stepsisters. Hezbollah are the Rolls Royce of terrorist organizations, whereas Hamas have thousands of missiles of all kinds, Hezbollah have tens of thousands. In the 80s and in the aughts, 2000s, Hezbollah fought ably and well against Israel in Lebanon. They have easily the most trained, most disciplined fighters for a non-state actor out there. And so because of all this, Hezbollah are the jewel in the crown of Iranian influence. Why would you risk this when you've already gotten everything you want? There's no reason to do anything other than what Lord Salisbury would say. For those of you who've uh, looked at to dare more boldly, do nothing. It's almost always the best thing to do. Do nothing. And so the idea that they would risk Hezbollah is insane. They know, Iran, that Hezbollah can't overrun Israel with Hamas. That that's absolute fantasy. So why would you risk the jewel in your crown when you've already gotten everything that you've wanted? And that basis for thought is why this war hasn't expanded and why we give that chance at about 10%. Look, it could still happen. Mistakes can be made. Hezbollah shoot a few missiles every day across the border. Israel responds two or three each way, very low level. And, you know, if something horrible happened, if Hezbollah actually hit something like an Israeli troop carrier and killed 30 or 40 Israeli soldiers, that might force Israel to do something it didn't want to. That's why the rate is 10% and not 0%. But it is highly unlikely that this thing spin out of control, despite all the chicken littles, Mr. Ferguson and his friends saying the sky is falling down. It's not. As long as this is limited, it won't become World War III. And it's likely to be limited for a very odd and bleak reason. 
that Iran has already accomplished its strategic goals. And once you've won, why would you risk it? Thank you very much. Fun to do this and really get into the thicket of what's going on in the Middle East. For those of you who haven't subscribed, and tons of you have, it's been an amazing year for us. That's another thing I'm thankful for as our community. Please do subscribe now. And for those of you who have the stocking stuffer, we hope, is your subscription to us so that we can do what we're planning to do next year, which is ramp up to doing three of these a week. Um, certainly the culture. Uh, over the weekend, we'll move on with our Hemingway series where we look at For Whom the Bell Tolls, an absolute classic um, and we continue our ride through Hemingway, um, and then twice a week looking at, at, at what's going on in the world, the Patrick Henry podcast, where we hold the feet of the fire of the Western establishment and around the world in 20 minutes, which is our bread and butter. But to do all this and take all this time from my booming business and my goodness, January, I can't wait to tell you, we have all kinds of a PR events for the book, plus the January 10th date. We're all going to go on to Amazon and get this and get Jeff Bezos working for us. Um, given all this creative ferment, I do need the $70 as an opportunity cost to keep our community front and center where it belongs. But thank you so much. Have a great weekend and on to the next.